0: Hello and welcome to The Film File, the film show for Film Geeks by Film Geeks and we have another bonus episode of all the deep dives you might not have heard. So this week, Lee is on holiday and I'm still busy down in Banbury with the brand new cinema, the complex that's opened here. And so we're taking a little bit of a breather this week, but we're not going to leave the airwaves empty for you. Here we have today a selection of deep dives from some of our early episodes in the early 30s. Yes, all those episodes ago. You might not have heard them. You might be a newcomer to the show. This is a great chance for you to get back up to speed on all the great films that we've selected to dig a little deeper into and give you our thoughts on and don't forget whenever we do one of these episodes over on No Barriers Radio which you can find through nobarriersradio.com we also present an exclusive bonus episode for the station which looks at music used in films and Lee has submitted a selection of music choices from films that range from everything from Sound Garden to Badly Drawn Boy and of course there's a bit of John Williams also thrown into the mix. It's a great hour of listening and it's well worth dropping over. It goes out at 9pm on Thursday and sometime after the weekend it appears within the archive on there for listening back to at your pleasure. So why not check out nobarriersradio.com and have a listen to our bonus music episodes that go out on that station. Anyway, in the meantime, let's flash our minds back to the heady days of episodes 31 onwards for a few of our older deep dives.
1: Okay, so because we've not had a chance to be sat in a dark and cinema reviewing films, what we've been doing every week is taking a deep dive, deep dive into classic movies that we can look back on. Uh, Last week, we looked at The Matrix from afar and saw how that has held up wonderfully. It's kind of led us down a science fiction route And it led us to the 1972 environmentally themed American sci-fi film directed by Douglas Trumbull, Silent Running. This kind of came out in the wake of 2001, which Douglas Trumbull was responsible for the uh, effects work on. So it's in the future, all plant life on Earth has become extinct. Many specimens of plants as possible have been preserved in a series of uh, greenhouse-like spaceships. Uh, And in one particular one, the Valley Forge, forming part of a fleet of American airline space freighters currently just outside the orbit of Saturn. In Valley Forge, Bruce Dern plays Freeman Lowell, one of four crewmen aboard, is the resident botanist and ecologist who carefully maintains a variety of plants for the eventual return to Earth and the reforestation of the planet. And Lowell spends most of his time with three drones, cultivating crops and attending to the animal life, when, out of nowhere, the crew gets orders to jettison and destroy the domes and return the freighters to commercial service back to Earth and that's where the film kicks off. I have so much love for this film. We were talking earlier um, about seeing films at the cinema. I wish I'd seen this at the cinema. I would've been far too young when it came out. I absolutely adored it. I saw it on TV. Whenever there was a viewing of it, I uh, I I would be all over it. Absolutely adore Silent Running. It's the perfect sort of follow on to 2001 as it was the first other science fiction that gave you scope about being in in space. I see it as a close cousin to 2001. It's very much of its time. It's only got a short running time of 89 minutes, but none of the 89 minutes is wasted. I, I, I can't say any more than I absolutely adore it. Andy, don't tell me now that you hate it.
0: Oh, no. Um, I remember when I first saw this, I think it was BBC Two did a series of sci-fi films at like 6pm every yeah. Wednesday. And this was one of the ones, because things like this and Dark Star, I got to see during that sci-fi specials on BBC Two. And I was captivated by it. I thought that, yeah, you know, there's there's all the things, it influenced so many films that came afterwards. It's a bums in space. It doesn't portray future society as advanced and enlightened, but shows a bunch of guys just doing a job that they're clearly tired of. Yeah. You now, starting off with the, the the other members of the crew who are racing around and causing havoc in buggies because they're bored. They've been on this assignment for ages. And this is a theme that got echoed in films such as Dark Star and Alien. Yeah, found yeah.
1: its it sort of setting with, you know, working class guys in space as opposed to you know the gleaming astronauts that that everything had been before and up to two thousand and
0: one, and even the even the sci fi sitcom Red Dwarf is heavily influenced by it. And you know the creators of Red Red, Red Dwarf, uh, Rob Grant and Doug Naylor, have said that this film was an inspiration for where he's launched from. It's such a, a simple story it's a warning for humanity. It's you know you've destroyed the planet, you need to protect the planet, and you need to find a way to keep. Nature alive, even if humanity has to die. And it's a, things take a dark turn quite early on in the film. And it is all about Freeman Lowell, played brilliantly by Bruce Dern. Yeah, so he, and it's crazy everything he can. Isn't it? Everything he can to preserve this last bit of plant life and wildlife that no longer exists. This is, this, this is a Noah's Ark that he is trying to protect. He's a captivating presence on screen. He's so well placed in the role. There's never a moment that you just think, oh, would this just get on with the story? Because it is, the whole thing just flows. Absolutely love this film. Going back and rewatching watching it was such a joy because it's been a good like decade and a half, maybe two decades since I last watched it. And it's one of them that at the back of the mind, is like, oh, is it still as good as it? I'm not sure. Uh, but as soon as it started, I was just like, no, I'm in.
1: I mean, I was just about to point out all just, I mean, a list of positives on it, um, starting with Bruce Dern. It was always that edgy actor uh, and he's always been very charismatic, but he's always, he always brings some sort of quirkiness. That quirkiness plays off, you know, the, the, he's basically uh, an interstellar tree hugger. And, yeah. uh, and, but he's somebody who cares passionately about, about preserving the environment. So it's got that, it's got that very still today relevant green aspect to it. Um, Douglas Trumbull, as we said, had been involved with creating the effects for 2001. Uh, he took elements that were unused in 2001, such as the Stargate sequence, which was going to be set around Saturn. And he brought that into into Silent Running.
0: Yep. It's got a, a
1: very earthy look, as you said, you know, uh, working guys in space, which influenced films like Alien. So there's there's a sense of it feeling real all the way through. And then there are the drones, the three drones, which he nicknames Huey, Dewey and Louie.
0: Hugely inspirational for um, everything that followed. You know, these were robots with personalities that has become a staple of sci-fi ever since. Small robot companions. Would we have had R2-D2 without Huey, Dewey and Louie?
1: Very distant cousins of R2-D2. And they were played by amputees to give them that robotic feel. They're they're small squat-like robots which don't appear human. Uh, but they, they're embedded with personality in the same way that R2-D2 is embedded with, with personality.
0: I, I find it interesting with the use of the robots, the, his interactions with them, because he's very much like, you say, a hippie. He's like nature and animals and plants. But he has a connection with these three drones that is like the bridge between the natural and the futuristic to show that maybe mankind could have survived alongside nature all along if he just paid attention. And he reprograms and trains them to tend to the plants, which leads to some like quite amusing scenes when he's trying to train them how to dig, to plant a tree and they just drop things. Uh, he builds that connection with the technology that he's tried to shun through his interactions with these three robots.
1: It was surprisingly, looking back at this film, I, I didn't realise that Michael Cimino was one of the screenwriters, as was Stephen Bochco, who went on to, to create uh, fantastic series like LA Law and uh, NYPD Blue, uh, and my particular favourite, uh, Hill Street Blues, which I think is probably the element that gave it that grittiness. If anything now, and and I'm I'm just scraping at being slightly critical, is that the soundtrack is very much of its time and a little bit sort of hippie-ish, uh, with uh, popular folk singer songwriter Joanna Bays contributing two songs to it. The rest is quite a majestic, uh, a majestic score. But saying that, I had the, the soundtrack album, and I absolutely adore the Joanna Bass songs on it. But if yeah. anything, that dates it of having that sense of it being uh, an early 70s film. But other than that, the special effects still held up very, very well. In fact, the special effects and the design of the craft are so good that they were used in Battlestar Galactica, uh, as yeah. stock footage for, for part of the fleet of the ships. But they are iconic. That Once you see them, you totally understand the design of them and where you've seen it before. I have nothing bad to say about Silent Running. It's a film of its time. It's a shame that Douglas Trumbull didn't direct more. He was responsible for the special effects on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the first Star Trek movie, Blade Runner, Ride right Up to Tree of Life. And he only directed one of the other movie, which was Christopher Walk and Natalie Wood, the last film that Natalie Wood made. Uh, brainstorm. But I I think he had potential as a director and it's it's a shame that he stayed in just a special effects. Not a shame because he was a great special effects master, but uh, you know, looking at uh, Silent Running he knew how to mix effects work with character work. And this film is is character driven at the end of the day.
0: As pretty much all good sci-fi from that era were, it was very much about the characters and not about the explosions etc. Marvellous film, well worth checking out if you've never checked it out Yeah, track down a copy of it and explore that great era for sci-fi with a message.
1: Absolutely. Couldn't recommend it highly enough. So, as Andy said earlier, in a couple of weeks, we'll be back in the cinema with a review for Tenant. But in the meantime, as we've been doing over the last few weeks, we've been taking a deep dive into classic movies. We've managed to cover movies like The Matrix. We started with Highlander. Last week we did... Uh, Silent Running. This week is a film that really needs no introduction. It's a film that I've not had to watch because I know it almost with encyclopedic knowledge. I have seen it that many times and that is This Is Spinal Tap, also known as This Is Spinal Tap, a rockumentary by Martin DeBerge. Very
0: delicate. It's
1: a a bit of a departure from the kind of thing you normally play.
0: What do you call this? Well, this piece is called uh, Lick My Love Pump. Mm. This is the loudest. Rock and roll. Rock and roll.
1: Most explosive band in heavy metal history. This
0: is Spinal Tap.
1: There's a fine line between stupid
0: and clever. The funniest movie ever made about rock and roll. He choked on vomit. But well, I can't That's prove
1: awesome. whose vomit it was. The Monumental Classic! There was a Stone Age monument on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. The makeup of your audience seems to be young boys. Oh, well, it's a sexual thing, really. We've got, you know, armadillos and our trousers. I mean, it's really quite frightening. <laughs> no, don't have I to. was just pointing at it. I like... Well, don't point. I'm sure I'd feel much worse if I weren't under such heavy sedation. <laughs> the cult phenomenon! The numbers all go to eleven. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? Why don't you just make ten louder and make ten be the top number and make that a little louder?
0: These go to eleven.
1: This is Spinal Tap. So, this is Spinal Tap. is a nineteen eighty four American mockumentary, uh, co-written and directed by Rob Reiner, stars uh, Christopher Guest. Michael McKeon, Harry Shearer, all names that have moved on to doing other things and you'll know from something, where they play members of fictional uh, English heavy metal band, Spinal Tap, who are categorised as one of England's loudest bands. Uh, Rob Ranger's Marty DeBerke, a documentary filmmaker, follows them on their, their American tour where literally everything that could go wrong goes wrong. This is a film that when I first saw it, I knew it by reputation. Didn't know a lot about it. This was in the, the hazy days. It sort of got released, not to a massive cinema release in the UK, ended up in a lot of the art house cinemas. I'd heard about it, but knew very little about it. And you didn't know any of the cast. I saw it at a friend's house and we both watched it on a, on a video rental. Turned around to each other and went, have we just watched something that's real? <laughs> yep. To the point where we actually... was the, the guys in the band, the English accents, the way that they portray musicians is, is just so spot on that for me, Spinal Tap at that point was a real band. I, I, you know, the, the fine line between was it, was it a, a documentary or mockumentary was, was so blurred because I, it, it was so spot on. Having worked in the music industry, having toured with bands, even retrospectively, this film, captures the music industry better than in almost any other <laughs> film I've ever seen. I adore Spinal Tap. I think it's utterly quotable. I think it's the sort of film that you can watch time and time again and see something new in it. It's it is absolutely a perfect film. And I know I say this a lot in, in, in films, and a lot of the films that we talk about are films that I, I, I do love. But I, my love of Spinal Tap is it's, it's just so... True to life, that it, it never, never, never ages for me. I love it, and I I show people all the time. I've got more, There's in, in rehearsals with my band, a quote will come up
0: almost weekly. This is a film that I I revisit very frequently. I absolutely love this film. Uh, same as you, that I was I knew it by reputation, and I was introduced to it because um, at school during dinner hour, uh, we set up a film club that someone will bring a VHS in, and over a week we'd watch like half an hour at a time. And this was a film that someone brought in because we, we'd we latched on to um, the comic strip presents bad news and more bad news. And then someone says, there's there's another version, another thing which is very similar to that, and brought this in. And watching it in a half hour chunks, and we didn't want it to stop, absolutely loved it. And from that point onwards, it became a regular rewatch and I always sort it out. It's just, so, I mean, same as you, it was like, is this a real band? And by the time that we got to watch it, which must have been about 1980, when did More Bad News come out? That was 87. So it, yeah, it was been, around
1: the same time. It would have been 87
0: was? that um, More Bad News came out, that we got to watch this. And by that point, Spinal Tap had kind of got albums out and they'd appeared on TV singing some of their stuff. So it was like, this is a real band, <laughs> I think, I don't know. And there's that blurring of reality between it that makes it work. Not scripted. Yeah, there was the basic storyline for each scene was like, this is going to like, it's all about this. It's all about, there's antagonism brewing because of this and da-da-da-da-da. And the cast were just encouraged, like, go for it, be in character, make up your lines. And that makes it feel like a documentary. It, does, oh, yeah. it doesn't feel polished. It doesn't feel like every bit of every bit of dialogue is perfectly structured. It feels like it's just been plucked out of thin air. And so you get, you know, ridiculous things like you know playing a nice melody like of, uh, you know, doo-doo-doo, lick my love pump, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's brilliantly put together. It's it's not the first rock mo- like music mockumentary, but it's definitely the one that's become the most significant and the most iconic and. Um, the one that has permeated public consciousness, even for people who've never watched the film. Everyone knows these go to 11. Yeah, Everyone, everyone knows the joke about your drummers constantly dying in mysterious gardening accidents or shaving incidents. Yeah, It's all moments that have become such a part of everyday life and everyday conversation that that's the impact that this film had. It just wove its way into society's framework mind.
1: So the, behind the scenes on this was, was the driving force was Michael McKeon and Christopher Guest. Um, Christopher Guest, we know, went on to, to make a career out of using the mockumentary idea. Uh, films like Waiting for Guffman and Best in Show. Uh, and Michael McKeon, last seen, uh, brilliant as ever, in in Better Call Saul, the first two seasons of that. Yeah. They worked with uh, Harry Shearer and Rob Rain on a TV pilot for a comedy sketch called The TV Show which featured uh, the parody rock band then and always called Spinal Tap. During production of that sketch, McKeon and Guest began to improvise, inventing characters that, that eventually became David St. Hubbins and Nigel Tufnell. And, and, you know, I, I've met those guys. I, I'm, I've met, should I say, I've met those kind of guys. I've met those guitarists. Uh, I've, it, it just hits, no pun intended, every right chord. They look and sound like a band. Their interaction is like a band. The fact that those, those guys can play as well. And yeah. It, it brought that realism to it. And, and it feels real. And I think that the idea that they didn't do a spoof documentary, and in, in what I mean by that, the whole thing is a spoof, it feels like an actual documentary, the way that it's shot. They used a cinematographer that was a, a, a documentary cinematographer. The, the mise-en-scene and everything about it makes it feel like a, a real documentary it's that good at, at pulling the wool over your eyes because we invest in the characters uh, and we invest in the style of it you know there's a lot to be said about found footage films uh, and, a, and a writer friend of mine said found footage films work when they feel like found footage films yeah. not the fact that the, 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 there's too many cameras or there's too many angles they work because it's it's a part of the story. It's, it's the reason to be. And there's there's no way you could have done a Spinal Tap film without it being a documentary. It's, it's, the, perfect, it's the perfect meld of the right material with the right subject for it to come
0: together. I mean, that, this film is a, a film that's loved by, I mean, you've already hinted at it, that those who work within the music industry and bands recognise elements of themselves in there or elements of people who they bumped into. And it's so widely regarded with it, like, you know, you've you've got, you just have to look at bands like Anvil, who are like a genuine real life Spinal Tap to see how real Spinal Tap actually is. Because anyone who's not seen the Anvil movie, you know, they have the same kind of fallouts, crazy ideas, gigs with only about five people turning up and bizarre publicity. So this... Kind of thing does exist, and that's why it works so well. So much deleted material from making this film. that on the DVD and Blu-ray releases, there's an actual second film on there made up of the deleted scenes.
1: Yeah, there's there's enough material, isn't there, for a, for almost an hour and a half of a of a, of another film of you know quite easily have been put together as a as a
0: sequel. And it's the fact that the band keeps showing up from time to time, even today. Look like you know the cast love to parade out those characters. Yeah, they released a new album about 12 years ago now. Yeah, um, they they even on the DVD release provided a hilarious commentary of over the film and the deleted scenes movie in character where they are critical about how Marty de Berge had portrayed them in, light absolutely. It makes watching the film again with that commentary on a whole new experience. It's a brilliant approach to filmmaking.
1: And of course, if you watch the DVD version, that's the whole Spinal Tap experience as well. You oh, rem- man. <laughs> you reminded me that it starts with a black screen with the guys doing the commentary over
0: it in character. And then the logo comes in from above, overhead. Similar to like the, you know, the Star Destroyer at the start of Star Wars, a big looming thing. And like, the talk they talk about like, oh, wow, epic. And then it just disappears into the far distance so you can hardly see it. Yeah. And they're like, no, that's too far.
1: <laughs> yeah. it, everything about it is is just—you can feel the love of the characters. It's there's so many ways to just keep on enjoying the tap.
0: Brilliant from start to finish. Bit of trivia: Do you know where the name Marty De Berge came from?
1: I'm assuming it's based on Martin Scorsese.
0: It's Martin Scorsese, Brian De Palma, and Steven Spielberg mashed together.
1: Well, of course, I mean, they used the idea of, you know, of Martin Scorsese because he made the documentary The Last Walls, yep. which was an inspiration for the film. There was also the, the Bob Dylan documentary, Don't Look Back. The incident where Tap become lost in backstage, <laughs> trying to find the stage,
0: that
1: yep. uh, was inspired by a video of, uh, of Tom Petty at a concert in Germany. You know, there was all the things like the Judas Priest and Uriah Heep and all this, the stories of excess. As a quick aside, the getting lost... Finding a stage once happened to me, (laughs) so it was just the most incredible. You know, we went down to the stage to a dressing room,
0: rock and and roll,
1: got to to the stage, and the the door to the to the backstage area was locked, and we had to go all the way around back, so we didn't have to walk through the venue. It was there's so so much of it, It, and as you said, everything about it has become a, a descriptive term. It's just it's, it's just perfect. There's not many films that you can say are perfect. Spinal Tap is, 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 is just up there with, with not only the, one of the funniest comedies of all time, but one of the best films ever made.
0: I mean, the, the songs themselves, if the songs weren't made to seem so serious, even though the lyrics are really bizarre, it would have been jarring and make it, make it not feel real. It's the fact that the riffs are amazing. The, the cast can play. And they play pretty good. It's just that when you really pay attention to it, like on on the first time around, you don't pick up on all the lyrics. But the second time around onwards, you start to pick up. You know, my baby fits me like a flesh tuxedo, or I wanna sink away with a pink torpedo. Stonehenge, nobody knows where they came from. Yes, they do. <laughs> 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 and tonight I'm going to rock you with it. You're too young, and I'm too well hung. It's like whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, but they're all perfectly used to demonstrate the ridiculously ridiculousness of some rock songs from like the 70s and 80s era that the art it parodies it in such a brilliantly loving way that it feels it feels real and even when you watch it today you still think that this could have been a band
1: (laughs) just just one kind of uh closing point on it do you remember that that spinal tap played at the freddie mercury um queen tribute concert yes (laughs) Um, some some friends of mine were on uh, on that bill. I'm not going to sort of an neck drop at this point. But they said backstage that, that Spinal Tap stayed in character <laughs> all the way through in the dressing room, in going up on stage, were always, always in character. And that makes me love them <laughs> a little bit more. Spinal Tap is, is our deep dive. What a fantastic,
0: marvelous film. Such a legacy as well. I mean, you've already mentioned Christopher Guest with his mock documentary approach. Cause he's done a mighty wind for folk music. He's done pet shows right. with best in show and for your consideration for movie award process. But there's also been like, you know, a look at rap industry with CB Ford and fear of a black hat taking the same kind of approach. And most recently, and if anyone's still not watched this track down pop star, never stop, never stopping.
1: I, I've not seen it. I've heard good things about it. It
0: is. It is the perfect spiritual companion to spinal tap. Cause it takes like a modern day pop, idle kind of approach to the whole documentary feel, and it's well worth checking out.
1: I'd also turn your attention to uh, All You Need Is Cash, the, the Ruggles story.
0: I'll re-watch that this week. Um, yeah, I saw that
1: recently it's a, it's, a, it's,
0: a, it's a brilliant mockumentary spoof in the Beatles. It captures everything perfectly. It's really on, on the nose with a few things. And I know that um, I, the Beatles generally enjoyed it, but they all have their own little points. Which, is like, oh, you went a bit far there, yeah. <laughs> John Lennon apparently, um, he was sent a copy of All You Need Is Cash to review it and say what, what he thought of it. And he refused to return it because he loved it so much. <laughs> but he did, <laughs> and he did, of course, George
1: Harrison's in it,
0: yep. George Harrison pops up because he was, um, also co financed it, yeah, absolutely brilliant. Spinal Tap, absolutely brilliant. It, what If you've not watched it, watch it and then go on IMDb and rate it up to 11.
1: You, you've not seen the film, that makes no sense to you whatsoever. <laughs> Shame on you. So the other thing we've been doing over the last few weeks during our, you know, if you, you were to put this year on, on TripAdvisor, would even make one star not recommended. <laughs> we've been looking at deep dives of certain films because we've not had a chance to go out and review. But this week, ties into hopefully our our first review next week, and that's Christopher Nolan's 2010 science fiction action film, Inception. I can access your mind through your dreams. It's called Inception. The seed that we plant in this man's mind may change everything.
0: Walk away from this. This was not a part of the plan. You're not prepared for this.
1: Deception. Directed and written by Christopher Nolan, produced with his wife, Emma Thomas. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio. Now you see what we're doing? We're segueing wonderfully
0: as yeah, a professional
1: thief who deals information by infiltrating the subconscious of his targets through their dreams. Ensemble cast includes uh, Ken Watanabe, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Marion Coulthard, Ellen Page, Tom Hardy, Killian uh, Murphy, Tom Berenger, and of course, no Christopher Nolan film would be complete without Michael Caine being in there.
0: Hey, there's also, and we've already mentioned him before, Pete Postlethwaite.
1: Oh, Pete Postlethwaite, yeah, yes, you see the connections already. So, for those who find the plot hard to work out, I, it always surprised me. Basically, Dominic John Cobb are extractors of information, and they do this by infiltrating their target subconscious, extract information through a shared dream world. And it's kind of a heist movie. It's kind of a Bond movie. And it deals with some of the, the themes that Christopher Nolan expresses in all of his films, which is this this jumping of time, uh, the un, uneasy use of narrative, the way that, that we, we, we cut between different timescales and which is played out in the in the, in the film's finale. It's a film that I really, really enjoyed for, for the spectacle. Uh, and, and it's not necessarily my favorite Christopher Nolan film. It's kind of my go-to Christopher Nolan film. If anything, yeah. anything is to, to, to ever identify what Christopher Nolan does. It's this film. It encapsulates his work in a nutshell for me. Has it stood the test of time? And I still can't believe it's 10 years. I remember to the day going to see it, but, For you, Andy, is it's the test of time?
0: Well, this is a film that I've actually not seen it since it left the cinemas 10 years ago. Okay. So this was a genuine fresh revisit with a worry that it might not have actually stood up well. And maybe after all this time, I won't like it. But I needn't have worried because it it really does stand up well. I was hooked once again from the start. And the runtime, which is quite a long runtime, flew by. The whole structure of the story, the layering of dream worlds, the questioning of reality throughout still works. And the ambiguity of that ending still leaves me thinking and trying to piece together how much of what I saw was dream world and how much was real.
1: Yeah, it's not a confusing film, is it? I mean, I remember a lot of it's, critiques.
0: It's oh. a very clever film. Yeah,
1: it's layers upon layers,
0: isn't it? Yeah, it could have been a really confusing film, but we are given the character, Ellen Page's character as our entry into the mechanics of dream travel. She's the new recruit to the group for the new heist, and even the new heist is like would be overly complicated. But because she's the new recruit, that gives the... It's really clever script writing, because that gives the exposition. That enables the exposition to feel natural and not feel like it's just put there for the audience. It's her being coached on everything as she's learning how you craft someone's dream in order to, you know make them believe that it's real before you can get detected as being an impersonator within that arena. It's marvellously layered together. And the cast are just all... I mean, DiCaprio and Joe Gordon-Levitt are always on high form. Oh, yeah. But here, they they just work off each other beautifully. And Tom Hardy... Yeah, I, I, can, look, I can take or leave Tom Hardy. Sometimes he can be really good, other times he can be Venom. <laughs> and in this, in this, thankfully, Nolan got the best out of him. He uses him so well, and everyone plays their part so perfectly. There's a marvelous cast. It's a marvelous script. Intelligent sci-fi. We love our intelligent sci-fi. We we we're we're partial to the dumbing down occasionally, but we love something that has has some meat to the bones. And Nolan had been working on this one for over a decade, hadn't he? That's
1: right. Well, he he started out as an eighty-page treatment about Dream Stealers, and he he originally saw it as a, a inception as, a, as, as a, a horror film, but eventually yeah. wrote it as a heist film, which is which is what gives it its its credence. Which you know, this is the the film that Nolan said was his Bond film until well, what we think Tenant is, uh, and when he revisited it. He relied on the idea of the interior state, the idea of dream and memory, and he realised that he needed to raise the emotional stakes. And also, since he came up with that treatment uh, over the nine or ten years since he'd done it, there'd been films like The Matrix, and you had Dark City and Thirteenth and Floor, and he and he says himself to a certain extent, he had memento, and they were based on those principles. That the world around you is is not what is is not what's real. So yeah. Nolan pitched this to Warner's in 2001, but he decided he needed more experience in making big budget, larger scale films and embarked on, on Batman Begins and, and Dark Knight. And then he realised that Inception needed to have that large budget, budget because as soon as you start talking about dreams, he said, the potential of the human mind is infinite. And so the scale of the film has to feel infinite. And he'd been wanting to work with DiCaprio for years and met him several times, but able to recruit him for his, uh, for his films until Inception. Uh, uh, and the two work together. And, in fact, it's, it's a pairing. I'd like to see them work together a- again. But it's a still a strong film. It's not one of those films that feels dated, the fact that he uses a lot of practical effects in it. There are moments in the film which are jaw-dropping, and I'm thinking the, uh, the, the Gordon Levitt's fight scene in the hotel. It has all the qualities that you look for in uh, uh, a Christopher Nolan film. Also suffers from some of the things that you look for in a Christopher Nolan film,
0: <laughs> which is for
1: me it's always a little bit cold. He, he is the closest director we've got working today that has almost a, a, a Kubrick-style ethos that runs through his work. And to me, even though Kubrick was is a was a brilliant director and a, an, an amazing stylist and amazing an amazing director, his films are always slightly cold. And Christopher Nolan follows that off for me.
0: Very clinical.
1: Yeah, absolutely, uh, and, and that's not to take anything away from from any of the work that he does, but there is a, is a there is that that Kubrick style clinicalness to his films. But it's it's a sumptuous looking film. Uh, some of the key sequences that you can you can see that that this is, as he put it, his Bond film with, with a nod to it on Her Majesty's Secret Service with the ski scene. So it works on as the film and the story does works on many many levels.
0: This was the film that had personally for me. His best collaboration with Hans Zimmer as well.
1: Yes, it's the soundtrack album that I that I bought uh, when it came out because I thought it was just fantastic.
0: I know that Dunkirk had a great use of Zimmer, but for me, Inception was the one that really, really has memorable moments. It has movements. It has it has grandiose to the soundtrack that really helped the film along. This, for me, is the last of the great Nolan films. His output since has been good, but always felt lacking. Dark Knight Rises was a bit of a letdown for the trilogy. Interstellar, I've got, I've got issues with.
1: Yeah, me too. Um, It's not as clever as it
0: thinks it is. And Dunkirk was was a spectacle to watch on screen, and I thoroughly loved it. But it doesn't have a lasting impression on me
1: because it liked hard. To to be honest, I think with uh, with Dunkirk, those are the best of his films for me since inception is dunkirk i i i didn't like dark knight rises it was a confused mess uh again looked great but he, what did he actually say um interstellar i totally agree with you uh, it's it's not as clever as it thinks it is and i think dunkirk is is a much more honest film again deals with these themes of of, of non linear storytelling but i i do like dunkirk i've got a very very special spot for it but it does it, it, like most of his films, it likes heart. My favourite film of his is still The Prestige. It's the film that I think um, does have a heart to it, does have a central um, central emotional feeling to it, and is still very clever in that Christopher Nolan
0: way. Mine is still... It still has to be Memento. Yeah, I can see that. I love, the, I love the structure of Memento. I love that the puzzle is pieced together by showing things in reverse... The reveal is jaw-dropping and even though that you know on the dvds when it came out there was a hidden option to be able to play things in sequence Why not and you that? get to see that the st- the story is actually rubbish <laughs> uh, but it's not about the story it's about the manner in which it's presented and it showcased the talent of a director who wasn't afraid to do something a little different after that, I'd say Insomnia. I mean, I've got a lot of love for Insomnia. Yeah,
1: you see, I went back and revisited Insomnia and it, it works as a... It's almost the pilot to the rest of his career, much more so than the memento for me. I think it's when he started to, to, to paint on a bigger
0: canvas. But um, interesting trivia. Take the first letters of the names of characters from Inception. Dom, Robert, Ames, Arthur, Mal and Santo. And your spell... Dreams. And then throw in Peter, adrian and Yusuf. And you've also got Pay. Dreams Pay, which is the whole movie summed up. So on the spinning
1: top, (laughs) to conclude this one, you can go and see Inception is it's on its ten year release, just in time to see uh Tenant, which we'll be reviewing next week. Uh, and looking forward to talking about Tenant. But that has been Inception. And this week I set Andy the challenge. To go back and watch fresh the Richard Attenborough 1992 uh, biographical drama film about the life of Charlie Chaplin, simply titled Chaplin. Chaplin! They tried to ruin his reputation. How old is this one? Well, sir, she's underage, is all that matters. And end his career. He, he is people, talking about MJ America. August. You be creative for a change. Charlie! But no one could destroy the genius Just waiting for that shot, Sid. of Chaplin, Robert Downey Jr. in a Richard Attenborough film, Chaplin. Produced and directed by Richard Attenborough, starred Robert Downey Jr., Marissa Tomei, Dan Aykroyd, Penelope Ann Miller and Kevin Kline. And features uh, Charlie Chaplin's own daughter, Geraldine Chaplin, in the role of his mother, Hannah Chaplin. Uh, the film was adapted by William Boyd, Brian Forbes and the great William Goldman from Chaplin's autobiography, uh, His Life and Art. Andy, what did you make
0: of Chaplin? Uh, well, I'll start off by saying that there's very valid reasons why I never saw this film when it came out. Okay. Because I was never much of a fan of Charlie Chaplin.
1: Which is a good enough reason not to to, to, to think about watching it, to be honest.
0: Yeah. I was, all, I was always more of a Harold Lloyd, Buster Keaton, Laurel and Hardy guy, and Charlie Chaplin never quite resonated with me. And so that's why I skirted this one on release. Now I've seen the film, I'm still not that bothered with Chaplin. And it's, I, think, I think it's because the film feels very slight and superficial. It doesn't feel like it gets into any of the nitty gritty of stuff. And it feels a bit too drawn out and pondering to give it the closest words that I can think to fit to it. There's, there's issues that I have with the film. The issues are not the casting. I think the cast are marvellous. Robert Downey Jr. is absolutely brilliant in it. He's acrobatic. He immerses himself in the role. This is a young Downey Jr., and he's so likable and superb. so energetic on screen.
1: As you said, he immersed himself into the role. He's he's absolutely superb. And for a lot of people, this was this was Downey Jr. real entry into to leading man territory from from being a uh, that supporting actor role. Yeah, and blew me away when I saw it. Uh, for that reason alone, I love this film because of Robert Downey Jr. And I, I'm going to agree with everything you're going to say. And I find that the heart of it is the heart that you get with most bi- biographical films is this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. Uh, and they're almost vignettes of the next tragedy or the next high, then the next low.
0: I tend to find that the best biographical films look at one small portion of someone's life. You've got things like a uh, Capote, that was a marvellous biographical film because it was only focused on a short period of time. The problem that this film has is it tries to look at its whole life from childhood to old age, which means that there's no time to spend to make you care about anything that's going on along the way. And as the story meanders along from wife to wife, you get introduced to a new relationship and then it's discarded three minutes later. And you're like, oh, I recognise that actress. from Oh, she's gone. And you don't care why the relationships break up. You're just like, meh. It happens. And that kind of... If you couldn't connect to anyone except... I mean, you've got to connect to the central character. And Downey Jr. does a great job of making you almost connect to him. But if you can't connect to anyone around him, then having that isolated person around a load of non-entity faces doesn't quite resonate and it doesn't quite draw you into the story. And it gives a bit of a safe approach for a biography. I suppose, you know, having involvement of Charlie Chaplin's daughter... In the film, probably didn't help matters because it meant that they had to be careful not to upset with anything which might be a bit distasteful.
1: Well, I saw this film at the premiere, and I saw Richard Attenborough give uh, his introduction, and he was enamoured by Chaplin. He yeah. absolutely loved Chaplin, and you that can comes tell. Through. It was it was a film for me that was about seeing it with Attenborough doing the opening, and I got a chance to, to quick hello, and it, and it changed. It changed my life in a lot of ways because I had a quick, quick conversation with Atterbury, and he was quick, and he'll never, he would never would have remembered it. But it's one yeah. of those things, and he and I said, I, "I want to get into filmmaking in some way," and he just said, "Dear boy, you have to do it," and uh, and it meant so much. And it was his love of, of of Chaplin that came through. So I enjoyed it more, knowing why he made this film and seeing that speech. But everything yeah. you're saying, and retrospectively looking at it. It is. It, it does suffer from all those things that bio, biographical films suffer
0: from. It tries to tell too much of a story in a short space of time and yet still feels like it's taking too long to say, to say it. I don't like the framing mechanism as well. They've got a fictional publisher played by Anthony Hopkins speaking with Chaplin as an old man talking about his biography that he's going to be releasing and I didn't need that framing because I could see the events on screen and it ends up it has a corresponding voiceover between the pairs the talking things like I don't need this it's on screen stop patronizing me
1: now as we said the the highlight of the film is is Robert Downey Jr.
0: Yes absolutely marvelous in it
1: and it, and it's it's a beautiful performance and you recognize the the talent that Robert Downey Jr has or you know at, at that point in his his career it was he was an up and coming star and for personal reasons, as we know, but the studio wanted Robin Williams or they wanted Billy Crystal uh, and even mentioned Jim Carrey. But I can't think of anybody else in this film other, other than Robert Downey Jr. Not only you begin to to look like, like Chaplin as he went through and so much so that Attenborough included actual footage of Chaplin because at that point you believed yeah. in him so much. It, it was about his performance was absolutely absolutely amazing and for other actors that film should have opened the doors to to leading man territory in, in, in bigger films but unfortunately as we know it, it took time for robert downey jr interestingly on a side note uh, a friend of mine was working on ali mike beale and got to know robert downey jr and everybody in the cast said that you know the guy is a genius an absolute genius but at that point in his, not, in his life he needed those other things those those things which de- was destroying him to make him that genius and you see a lot with musicians you, you need that darker part of your life to to be that brilliant but yeah he's a tour de force in it and, and makes the film and it makes it a it makes it the memorable film because of him
0: overall i'm glad i watched it but I have no interest in watching it again and it's not made me want to go and seek out Charlie Chaplin films. Unlike Stan and Ollie, which I thought was a good biopic that made me go home and get online and go, I, I need to see some of them Hardy shorts and thoroughly immerse myself in them. But that
1: did the thing that you mentioned earlier, which is to take, rather than look at an entire life, it takes in a terms. moment in time. Yeah. And I think
0: this. that's where you, sh- where you should go do a biopic is always just focus on a short period, an influential period, rather than trying to cram everything into one thing. It fails in the same way that other biopics that have done too long a time frame have failed. It's a good film, it looks great, it sounds great, just doesn't quite work.
1: So, our deep dive for this week is uh, the 1995 neo-noir mystery thriller The Usual Suspects. Ready? Critics are calling the usual suspects a stylish and intricate thriller. Anybody goes in there's not coming out alive. A deliciously complex crime story. There's nothing that can't be done. Spellbinding and demonically funny.
0: Your dance.
1: Stephen Baldwin, Gabriel Byrne, Chaz Palmonier, Kevin Pollock, Pete Puzzlethwaite, Kevin Spacey, Benicio del Toro. Now it's payback! The usual suspects. Rated R. Directed by Brian Singer, and and don't let that put you off, because whatever's happened to Brian Singer in his personal life, at this point in his career, he was a master filmmaker. And for his second film, delivers something that is, is really worthwhile. Written by Christopher McQuarrie, who the two worked together again several times. Christopher McQuarrie now, of course, deeply embedded into most things that Tom Cruise is doing. Star Stephen Baldwin, Gabriel Byrne. Benicio Del Toro in his, probably his first real big screen role, Kevin Pollack, Chas Palmentari, the great late Pete Osaway and Kevin Spacey, another name that's sort of been, well, kind of extracted from film history and, and as, a, as a black mark against it. But an actor at this particular point in his career, he was playing on full cylinders. So the plot follows the interrogation of one Roger Verbalkin, the small-time uh, con man, who is one of the only two survivors, a massacre and a fire on a boat docked in the port of Los Angeles. Through flashback and narration, Kint tells the interrogators a convoluted story of events that led him and his criminal companions to that boat and to a mysterious crime lord known only as Kaiser Solzhen. This is a film, when I first saw it, I instantly fell in love with and went to see it again as soon as it opened. I saw it as a a press show, and, and when it opened, I went to see it again because... It's everything I like about a crime thriller. Uh, it's, got the, um, it's got the narrative, which in this case, does it turn out to be true or false? It's got uh, twists and turns. It's gritty, and yet it's cool. It's got some fabulous performances on. And, and this was kind of in, in an era that was sort of post-Quentin Tarantino. Lots and lots of films looked like Reservoir Dogs, but this film didn't. It yes. was utterly, utterly cool. Has it aged well? Have you had a chance to see it again, Andy? And, and do you think it's it's a film that that deserves all the credit that it was given at the time? And has it been dented by the allegations made at uh, Kevin uh, Spacey and Brian Singer?
0: Yeah, I've had a chance to watch it again. And it's safe to say that this is a film that doesn't rely on the twist. I mean, everyone must know the twist by now. Yeah, spoiler. It's been out so long that you know the twist. But if you've, if you've never watched the film and you're being put off because you already know what the twist is, don't let it put you off because it doesn't depend on the twist. Unlike an M. Night Shyamalan film, which when you re-watch it, you go, oh, well, actually now they know the twist, what's the point in watching this? Usual Suspects rewards repeat viewing. I'd put it alongside things like Fight Club in that when you re-watch it, knowing what the twist is, you spot much more things. And I got a lot out of rewatching this. I loved it. It's a five star film still, as far as I'm concerned. It looks amazing. The cast are great, but seeing it, knowing where it's going, and you get to spot more details. You get to spot how Verbal, played magnificently by Spacey, takes in the details of the room around him, and how the questioning officer lifts his cup to drink from right in Verbal's eye line, which is a very key component of that reveal. The twist never feels like it comes out of nowhere. And it's great going back and revisiting it. It's all, it's all there,
1: isn't it? The, all, all the pieces, all the parts of the puzzle.
0: Everything's... I mean, it's Macquarie. He gets... He weaves everything well. He knows where he's going. And he knows the path he's taking to get there. He doesn't just throw things out. I mean, some films throw out a twist just for like, ah, you didn't see that coming. It's like, well, there was nothing to lead up to that. So, of course, I didn't see it. Whereas he puts everything in there that you should have picked up on if you were observant. Yeah. I love clever writing like that. Does the casting and the director involve kind of taint it. No, I'm I'm a firm believer that you can separate art from the artist to some degree.
1: Yeah, and I, I, I totally agree with you.
0: And what you also have to realise is that the, there's allegations, but nothing's actually been brought against the parties in this film. None of these have been proven, just like with Woody Allen. Allegations have been made, but nothing's actually been taken to court or been proven. You have to look at their work as their work If you're going to dismiss everyone who's got a controversy and refuse to watch any films to do with anyone who's got a controversy, you pretty much can't watch any film. You need to to strike all of Hitchcock's back catalogue out of history because he was notorious for being a bully on set. So let's not let all the recent revelations, whether they're true or false, damage a film that is a product of multiple people. It's not just these two people. it's not like it's a documentary about Kevin Spacey made by Brian Singer. It's a film written by Macquarie. It's a film starring a great lineup of cast and that was put together by a multitude of people. So let's appreciate the film as the film
1: for a filmmaker's second film, his first being public access back in nineteen ninety three this is so assured direction. This is the sort of direction you would have got from someone who was further into the game, a, a Brandy Palmer or a, or a Coppola. And it, it does have that sort of Coppola feel to it. And, and yeah. you know, there are elements that reminded me of uh, um, of, of some of the De Palma work, things like um, like Blowout. Singer himself described the film as uh, double indemnity meets Rashomon, and that's never been so true. But it is such assured direction. I mean, he was only a young guy uh, at this particular point with, uh, and, and this is genius filmmaking. Uh, it, it's it's self assured. There's a confidence in it that that you wouldn't get from a from a, a second time filmmaker. The way that he controls a big cast, an ensemble cast, the way that he, he holds a shot, the way that he, he holds the plotting. Yeah, clearly that's all down to an excellent script by Christopher McQuarrie. And again, this was his his really his first major film. It's just so assured. I, 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 at points in his life, Singer has been an absolutely brilliant director. He, his his latter work, and and the controversies surrounding him, have, have have tinged everything that he does. And he and he has got lazy, and 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 apparently, in a lot of the stories that you hear, he got lazy on set. But uh, after *Pupil*, his, his follow up film to this, I think is a fantastic uh, Stephen King adaptation, and and very very good. I think the first and second *X-Men* movies. Are excellent. The second X Men movie, in particular, again playing with a big cast. Um, the work you did on Valkyrie is is again an, an underrated film that's that is confidently confident directed and teamed him up with McQuarrie again. This is this is so much going to it. The, the subterfuge, the interactions with the characters, the dialogue, the amazing set piece, which which is kind of what they built the film around, which is this, these bunch of criminals meeting another police lineup which I, from what I, I hear came before the film even got made. Yeah. Everything about this works so, so well. It's, it's classy, it's clever. It's never too clever for its own good. It all makes complete sense when you watch it. Uh, and it's so confident, in, confident in the script, confident in, in direction, confident in all the performances. No one in it is, is wasted at any point. Everybody brings an A game to it. Um, the comparisons to it being a Tarantino-esque film go out the window as soon as you as soon as you see it.
0: There's some interesting notes from on set of things that made it into the film which weren't actually scripted. So Del Toro's accent was Del Toro's own idea. Apparently, he decided to do the performance in that way because his character was set to die. So it's like, what difference does it make what I do if I'm just going to die anyway? So he has this weird accent that the rest of the cast were told improvise around him talking in that accent, which meant that there's moments when some of the cast, Stephen Bolden at one point forgot his line and stumbles over his words because he, he, he was completely taken aback by Del Toro talking to him. You've got other characters turn around and like, just asking him to repeat something because they don't understand it, which is seen in the lineup scene when he does the um, whole cocksucker thing. And it's like, now in English... And then he says it again, more angry, because he was like, What? you don't, 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 don't. In the lineup scene as well, them breaking down laughing and the joking that's going on was completely unscripted and frustrated Singer at the time of shooting. And it was all because, again, Del Toro kept making everyone laugh by farting constantly. That ended up getting into the film because when it came to the editing room, Singer looked at it and went, I know it was winding me up on the day, but that actually worked a lot better. Yeah.
1: Yeah. A great, again, a confident choice to go, let your actors do the work and then when, yep. you, when it does work, don't be afraid to put it into the movie.
0: There's uh, The cigarette getting flicked at Baldwin's McManus by Redfoot it was supposed to hit his chest, but it hit his face instead, so the reaction of like, ah, damn! and him like falling away, was perfectly natural. That made it in. There's so much that comes from mistakes or jokes on set that got into the film, and I think it helps it work, because it makes it feel more real.
1: It, it does, and, and look at it again, it's it's everything about it is unexpected and, it, and it's done with a, just a marvellous elegance. And, and I keep using this word confidence because to tell this sort of story where you are pulling the rug away from the characters and the audience, you need to you need to have a have a script which is so secure that it never wrong foots you and leaves the audience scratching their head. It's kind of everyone. Every moment is like, oh, I, I I got it. I get it now. Uh, it just works so well. It's expertly shot, it's expertly edited. It, it really is a simple plot, but it's just got yeah. so many layers of twists and turns on it and deceit. and, you see, and it's, it's never even that violent, to be honest. It's, it's not one of those which uh, those sort of films in that period that were were Tarantino rip-offs. It, it, it is its own thing, and, and because of that, it works so well. McQuarrie won uh, the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay, and Spacey yeah. won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor in the 68th Academy Awards. Um, this is a film that that still resonates today. It's it's beyond a cult classic. It is a just a, a great classic
0: movie. Singer had all the cast believing that they were Kaiser Soze in order to keep the twist a secret. There's a famous story about how once they did the like test screening with the. Cast and crew. The Gabriel Byrne <laughs> took Singer outside and had a right go at him because he thought he was going to be the big reveal. Because he got various members of the cast to dress up as Kaiser Sose at some points for some shots, just to keep everyone off guard, even though it was always planned that Kevin Spacey would be playing the role. There's something that I, I spotted on this recently, because I literally watched it two days ago. One thing that I'd never spotted there's the zooming in on the ropes. At the docks, yeah, that
1: always threw me when I when I saw
0: that. That You're you led to assume that Verbal's hiding there because you see him running towards them and he runs behind some tyres. And so you're led to believe that that's where he saw all the events that were taking place. Yeah. But there's no one behind the ropes. I always
1: put it down as a, as a visual metaphor.
0: Rewatching it. I was looking for eyes. I was looking for anything. And it's like, he's not there. And it's space he was deliberately told to run and hide behind the tyres because he's not really there.
1: See, I saw it as a, a visual metaphor of what the film was about, this sort of tangled web. As, as literally as that but that's what's so clever about it That's why it's, it, it it's works such a smart film on, on, on numerous viewings once you know what the ending is it doesn't take it away as you said earlier you, you can it opens it. up a whole new way of watching you it. can watch it again in a different light and, and see the layers and then go you know what, this all works this all works because it's a it's a narration and it's a narration which is leading us down the garden path a fantastic film a classic of its type for me, one of the best heist films ever made, yeah. Usual Suspects.
0: And there we go for another bonus episode. It's interesting listening back through those early episodes. The early days of the pandemic and the lockdowns where we were just getting used to the remote recording and the different sound effects. I like to think that over the years, the show has grown. The deep dives were only used originally as a stopgap while there was no releases at the cinema. And now it's become a a part of the film file formula and i think it's a part that both me and lee really enjoy bringing we like to delve back into the past and in more recent episodes we've not just picked films that we've liked we've picked films that we don't particularly like to try to find out what good elements there are in there because films should be fun films should be positive and even a bad film someone made that with the best intentions so If you have any suggestions for any deep dives that you'd like us to look at, it doesn't have to be a good film. If it's a film that you think, I'd love to know what these guys think about this one, fire it over to us. Send us an email, podcast at filmfile.uk and we'll add it into the mix and do our own analysis of whatever films get thrown our way. Anyway, thank you once again for listening to this bonus episode. We'll be back with another normal episode next week which hopefully will be packed with our thoughts on all the San Diego Comic Con news and hopefully a review or two of some of the more recent releases at the box office. In the meantime, stay safe, take care and we'll see you soon.